Good day, Savannah. I'm Adam Van Bremer, and this is the Commute Podcast from SavannahNow.com. On this episode, constitutional carry is likely coming to Georgia. Governor Brian Kemp has given his blessing to removing restrictions connected to purchasing and carrying pistols, and lawmakers are expected to pass legislation that would legalize constitutional carry this session. Legal scholar Mark Rourke joins my colleague Will Peebles in a discussion about what such a law change would mean. Today is Tuesday, January the 25th, and this is a commute podcast presented by National Office Systems. Mark Rourke and Will Peebles will be along in just a second after I pay the bills. National Office Systems is a commute's presenting sponsor, not to mention my favorite local business. I think about them every time I step into our comfortable offices on Chatham Parkway. Owner Scott Center and his team over at National Office Systems are Savannah's experts in office design and outfitting. They work with top quality suppliers such as Dirt Modular Interiors and Herman Miller Office Furniture to create comfortable and productive workspaces. Learn more by visiting www.natoffsys.com. That's natoffsys.com. Now, here's Mark Rourke, a professor at the Southern University Law Center on constitutional carry. Um, so I think when you start thinking about this constitutional carry, which which has taken root in about 21 other states or has, has been adopted in 21 other states and is currently pending in about six other states, I, I think that there are three big moves or three big kind of issues that are all kind of related to each other. They all kind of bleed into each other but that you you kind of have to think about in, in not only the origins of these laws, but how they play out. Um, the first thing I think that you have to think about is the background uh, in which uh, these laws have come into play. And to understand the background is really to understand the difference between a gun license and a gun permit. Um, so licensing really is uh, the basic criteria in which the state authorizes or allows someone to have possession of a gun, very much like a driver's license. Uh, every state has licensing uh, requirements. So, for example, uh, in most states, felons are not allowed to uh, own a gun or carry a gun. They're, they're prohibited from having a license. George is um, included in that. Right. Georgia's included in that. Um, uh, you know, some states set age limits, but that really just sets the parameters in which the state allows or authorizes a person to own a gun. Um, permitting is a little different. Um, permitting allows you to carry a gun in places where other people are not allowed to carry a gun. Um, or, you know, if I wanted to say it a little bit more provocatively, um, you know, essentially permitting allows, gives permission to the holder of the permit to break the law. It gives them a privilege to act in con contrary to what the stated law would otherwise provide, right? And so the stated law prohibits uh, the, you know, as it currently stands prior to the adoption of, of this provision or this, this law, adoption of this law, uh, current law prohibits you from carrying guns in certain places. Um, under the Georgia edict, that would now eliminate parks, historic areas, memorials, and recreation locations 
from, from that list, which means that essentially you no longer have to have a permit in order to carry um, in those areas. Uh, I think it's important to kind of point out two, uh, two places that are not uh, included in that exclusion. One is schools. So, so there is still at least um, a, a requirement that if you were to carry an, a firearm in a school, you have some access, some permit or permission to do so. The other is the gold dome um, or state offices, right? And so, you know, this is uh, an example where we have legislators that are adopting the ability to um, carry a weapon in certain places uh, that don't include the places where they come to work every day. Um, now, I also think that there is a bit along the lines of that licensing and uh, permitting aspect that, and, and the places that are particularly exempted. I think that there is some, some current context that is hard to ignore. Um, and that is when we think about the exclusion of, or the, the now, um, uh, writing out of parks, historic areas, memorials, and recreation locations, we need to think about, well, well, what are these the places of? Well, these are often the places of public, um, of public protest or public um, discourse uh, around controversial issues. Um, and, and in Georgia, in the South, uh, you know, one of the hot topic areas that has come about um, are Confederate memorials or Confederate monuments around the state. Um, so I, th I think one of the things that this law does is it gives permission to exercise a performative aspect of gun play or gun, per gun performance uh, in areas where speech is going on, where, they're, where people are engaging in discourse or engaging in um, uh, questions. And, and so, you know, one of the things that I think we should keep an eye on or think about is, well, why, why is it that we are, we are permitting, uh, this performative aspect of gun possession, this overt performative aspect of gun possession in these places where speech is, uh, where speech is taking place. Oops. I'm sorry. That's me. I'm sitting, I'm sitting on my space bar. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, the, the second thing I, I, I would say, and, I, and I'll come back to that performative aspect in just a second. Um, but the second thing I would say about this is to think about where these laws have come from. Um, largely, these are prepackaged laws that come from outside interest groups um, that, that are given to legislators to adopt. Um, and, and this is not uh, a new strategy by outside lawmakers. So, for example, we have seen in recent years uh, attempts to eliminate critical race theory from the classroom, even though really critical race theory hasn't been invoked in elementary school classrooms. But nevertheless, the narrative is more powerful than uh, the meaning. And so you have these laws that have been promoted by the by FedSoc. Federal Society or the Heritage Foundation that have promoted um, this, this idea of, of, of eliminating these types of things. And you see similar things uh, relating to the elimination of tenure on university campuses or right to work legislation in states. 
All of these come from outside interest interest groups, and uh, not all of them, but but a fair amount of the laws that have been passed in the recent years relating to this have come from outside interest groups, uh, prepackaged for legislative adoption. And one of the things that I oftentimes observe in different contexts about that phenomenon is they come from groups that don't have to live on the ground where these laws are being passed. Uh, so, so these groups are able to get the ear of a legislature, get a legislator, get a backer, um, and, and essentially the, the legislature is not putting much work into, um, uh, the content or the substance of these laws. They are being, they're being promoted, they're being passed almost whole cloth with variations relating to the different states. You know, there'll, there'll be some variations, but for the most part, these are whole cloth laws that, that essentially achieve the same substance. Um, that to me seems to be a, a real uh, challenge and problem. And I'll go back to that form of narrative making. You know, if we think about where we have come from and what, what the um, role of gun rights are and the way we think about gun rights in the U.S., if we, if we look at the way that our the Second Amendment has been interpreted over time, you know, we would see very vast differences uh, from the first 200 years uh, of our nation's history relating to the Second Amendment and the last uh, 15. Um, the last 15 years have represented a significant um, turn. Now, you know, conservative scholars might say that this is a course correction that the court was making um, um, around the uh, original intent of the Second Amendment, preserving the original intent. Scalia famously in the Heller opinion uh, defers beyond the Constitution to the common law and asserts uh, a much more natural right to the possession of, of arms uh, in justifying um, uh, his opinion in Heller. But, but one of the things I think that is important is to, to realize is that at least up until Heller, at least until 2008, um, the U.S. Supreme Court had been very consistent that that states and local communities had the power to regulate the ownership and and the and the use of firearms. Um, and even Heller reaffirms that right to um, to uh, to uh, of the local of local governments and of states to regulate, even though it it finds that. Um, uh, that DC had gone too far in um, in its in its regulation. Now, one of the things I do think, and and I go back to this in narrative making, is that in the last fifteen years we have seen a significant remaking of the narrative through uh, legal channels in the Supreme Court with the Heller, the McDonald opinion. Um, we have also, and, and also likewise in legislative bodies through interest groups like FedSoc and like, like the Heritage Foundation that have, uh, that have really attacked uh, limits on um, gun ownership or gun use um, uh, through a multi multiple of strategies of both legislative and um, um, legal challenges. So, so, you know, 
what what has what that has meant is that this narrative that wouldn't have been uh, even uh, plausibly considered, uh, you know, prior to uh, I would say the 1980s. Uh, it's really in the 1980s that you begin to see this gun rights movement really begin to um, uh, insert this this rhetoric into both law and into the legislative uh, chambers. Uh, prior to the 1980s, you would have you, there would have been no question about the ability of of the state to regulate in 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 any way. And that kind of takes me to my third move, um, which I think is an underappreciated and a really interesting aspect of these um, of these constitutional carry provisions, which is that at core these are states these are these are laws that are being passed by the state where the state is essentially depowering itself vis-a-vis the federal government um that that you know when we look at the grand tradition of federalism in the US the the federalism has always represented this tension between states and the federal government uh who has the power to regulate certain areas who has the power, you know, where, what is the source of that power? Um, and generally, for the most part, states are given a wide latitude to regulate in most areas what we call the police powers uh, in the state. They have the ability to regulate for health, safety, and welfare. And gun rights have traditionally fallen into this, into this line of states' ability to regulate in these areas and the with, with certain limits uh, imposed by the federal government, by, by the federal constitution in the Second Amendment. What we are seeing in the constitutional carry is we are seeing the states simply saying, we're not, we are, we are choosing not to regulate in this area and we are going to uh, defer to the federal government, um, the, the federal government's uh, substance uh, in this arena. And the thing that I think is, and this maybe get a, get a little political, but I mean, tilt a little bit to the political, but law is politics, and so I mean, I'm 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 I'm, uh, you know, um, what I would say is, I would say when we look at the substance of what this law has directed towards, and and the meaning in the context of recent protests, what we what we could say is we could say that this is a clear attempt by by um, members of of um, the Gold Dome to sell a narrative of of um, Second Amendment rights over state interests. That there's really not much of a concern about uh, the state interest, other than the fact that if you if you buy into the perception that individuals with guns in public places. Uh, uh, means that public places are safer, then maybe this law makes sense, right? Maybe this law makes sense because you um, you 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 get to the you get to the idea that indiv- you know that 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 trope about a good guy with a gun and all of these things happening in 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 these in these spaces. The reality is, I think though, that no one's really comfortable with overt demonstrations of violence and and 
you know, in 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 those public spaces, particularly those people that don't have a gun or that don't bring a gun uh, to that conversation. Um, and so I think there's a real question about the chilling effect that it has uh, on people's ability to gather and to have speech. Um, I think there's a real question about uh, who does this law favor? You know, I, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that uh, this this law gives uh, groups that might be sympathetic to white nationalist groups or towards Confederate monument groups the permission to engage in performative violence. And I call it performative violence because it's carrying, a, you know, guns or violent, you know, things they are they are they are meant to assert authority. And so there really is this performative aspect. And this is really the state standing behind that and saying, that's okay. We are okay with people exercising that performative level of violence that may cut off certain levels of discourse in our communities. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. And that's something that they definitely have built with it. It's the whole safety concept, this whole idea, like you said, a good guy with a gun. And uh, just today in the state of the state, like an hour ago, he was like, um, uh, I wrote it down. Hang on. He said uh, the ability to protect, giving Georgians the ability to better protect themselves and their families or the right to defend themselves and their families. And yeah, that's kind of how it's being built. Um, I guess my question, what is, so what is different about it? We talked about uh, licenses. We talked about permits. What is different about if this bill was to go through, be formed and passed um, as just a straight constitutional carry bill? Um, what, what would that look like? Is it, like you said, the, the state is relinquishing that power in a way. Does it like under, will there just be a, uh, they'll take the carry part of it out and put in, you know, defer to second amendment, I guess. I don't know. Well, what would that look like? Yeah. So, so, you know, the text of the bill as proposed, um, what, what, what it does in practice is it eliminates language in, uh, in the Georgia code that, that prohibit the carrying of firearms without a permit in certain areas. Mm-hmm. So, so in, in essence, you know, what this bill is, is it's kind of a big red marker uh, marking through existing legal provisions that that limit the ability to exercise. So, you know, it's not, you know, it it has, you know, all good, all good legal advocacy starts with naming. Uh, You know, there, there, there's a, there's a reason why uh, the, the case that, um, that ruled unconstitutional laws against uh, mixed race marriages uh, had a couple at the center of it named Loving, uh, because because you know naming matters. You know the way we name things and utilize things, they have they have powerful elements. And so you know this bill calling it constitutional carry as a reversion back to the Second Amendment. Um, you know, you know again, it's a little bit of narrative making where where you know you you sort of have this perception that. You know what the what the bill is doing is really just reverting state law back to the Second Amendment and saying, okay, the Second Amendment controls all aspects. That's not quite what it's doing. Like I said, there are areas where the state retains the power to has retained the power to limit the ability to carry guns, namely the Gold Dome schools. But um, but at least in these other public areas, parks, historic sites, recreation areas 
the state's no longer going to enforce or can no longer enforce the ability to require a permit in these areas. One of the interesting deviations in some states is that, you know, whereas you have about 21 states that have um, that have eliminated uh, this permitting in certain areas, um, some states like Arkansas have re have eliminated permitting requirements for the purposes of carrying a weapon in public places, carrying a gun in public places in the state of Arkansas, but they've retained the permitting process so that individuals can still obtain a permit. And the purpose of that is, is that most states that have permitting laws recognize by reciprocity other states' permits. So essentially what Arkansas is doing is Arkansas is retaining the infrastructure of its permitting process as a part of the law that would enable its citizens to obtain a permit so that if they went to a state um, that requires a permit like California or like New York to carry in a certain place, they would qualify for reciprocity to, to obtain that permit uh, in those spaces. Uh, once again, you know, I think this this begs the question, you know, why do outsiders, why are outsiders playing in this area, right? You know, why why should Arkansas, uh, you know, if Arkansas has decided for its own people that it doesn't require a permit to um, to to carry a gun in its uh, in in its state areas or public areas, you know, should we really be comfortable with the idea that Arkansas citizens can exercise reciprocity? And I think what you're going to see is you're going to see some of these states begin to withdraw that reciprocity uh, from certain states. So they, you know, states that don't trust that the permitting process is actually robust anymore or is actually meaningful. I think you'll see states withdrawing that reciprocity. Gotcha. And, and so when we talk about uh, uh, this, the, the laws as, as that are going with constitutional carry, sorry, I just said like a, a word, just vomit there. Uh, <laughs> when, okay. when we when we look at it, 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 there are some restrictions on it still. Um, and the first that I kind of caught was the kinds of guns. We're just talking about handguns here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're talking we're talking about um, uh, the kind the kinds of um, uh, uh concealed guns, guns that could be concealed otherwise. And the idea is that, you know, if you're going to carry a gun in public that's going to be concealed, people should have a right, have the ability to know, right, that that you you have that gun. And that this essentially takes out that provision that, that an individual can, you know, carry a gun privately and no one knows. You, you know, I'll tell you a few years ago, I mean, you don't, I don't know if you want to, you don't, don't have to include this, but I'll, I'll tell you a funny anecdote. They chop it up; it'll be fun. <laughs> a few years ago, I uh, I I was doing a debate with uh, a member of the Fed's Federal Society, a guy that's pretty well known in the Federalist Society for being a staunch gun rights advocate, and and he was carrying this this line uh, that guns make us safer, and that guns make us that that concealed guns, people that that have guns, uh, even concealed guns in public. Uh, all make us feel safer. And this was in Savannah. This was at Savannah Law School. And so when my time came up, the first thing I said uh, to the group is I said, uh, who in here is packing? Uh, 
and um, and you know nobody raised their hand. And I said, no, come on. I, I mean, we're in Georgia. Someone in here is packing. Like just by by the statistics, somebody's packing. And this little little female in the middle of the room raised her hand. She said, well, I have a gun on me right now. I was like, really? I was like, great. Pull it out. Put it on the table. And um, the 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 tenor of the entire room changed in that moment, right? You know, now this wasn't just a theoretical idea that people feel safer when guns are in their presence. There was actually a gun in their presence and no one felt safer. There were several people that got up and walked out of the room. Uh, there were, you know, several people that said, you know, that said, you know, we you know, kind of did an informal non-scientific poll, but an informal poll of the room. It's like, who feels safer? Uh, knowing that this person you don't know has secretly brought a gun into this group and no one felt safer, you know, in that moment, you know, and so, you know, there is, I think, part and parcel with these, um, these laws is that there is a real question about, about the narratives that we use to support them versus the reality when they come on the ground. And, you know, that good guy with a gun narrative is, is certainly one that gets, gets bandied about a lot, but, but I think even more so than the good guy, the good guy with a gun narrative is the idea that we are all safer because there are guns in our presence. And, you know, maybe, Maybe there is evidence to suggest that that's true, but I don't see that the legislature has really robustly considered that. What else should we talk about? Because that's pretty much everything I had to ask you. You know, one of the things I, I'll, I'll suggest, uh, I don't know if you know about uh, Adam Winkler's book, Gunfight. Adam Winkler's a professor at UCLA. Yeah, yeah I've you, heard the name. Yeah. Okay. I, I reached out to him yesterday when I was looking for sources. Oh, really? <laughs> you never know. I mean, he, I mean, he, he's a he's a really, re- really smart guy. Um, and uh, uh, his book is is outstanding. You know, one of the things I think is is really compelling and interesting about his book is he tells uh, all of these stories about places where regulation just wasn't even questioned. Right. He starts off by telling the story about George Washington confiscating the weapons of his troops uh after the revolutionary war um you know that that this was this was uh part and parcel you know he he brings up uh dodge city you know and the famous uh no guns allowed in town uh sign that was at the edge of dodge city um all of these are examples where you know people who are living on the ground in that moment you know made choices about you know, how they wanted to live in relationship to guns. And, and, and these were deemed to be perfectly reasonable and not in conflict with the constitution. And in fact, for many years, you know, up, you know, you know, the, the most direct statement prior to Heller on this issue uh, was, was in a case in 1939 um, known as um, I always, I always uh, 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 missed it. Miller. Um known as Miller, in which it not only reaffirmed that states had the right to regulate arms, but that the way that we should read the constitutional amendment is that we should read it as it, the amendment was designed to empower states to create militias, not 
uh, and as a state activity to create militias, not uh, not a privately organized um, uh, separate separate entity. Um, you know, that has kind of that is for the most part fallen out of our collective memory. And now we have we've created these larger narratives where we presume that the law or that constitutional principles uh, dictate that gun rights uh, be sacrosanct, that we we are very suspicious of any sort of state intervention in relationship to gun rights. And so that narrative has been completely flipped on its head um, just in the last 15 years. Thank you to Will Peebles and Mark Rourke for that interview. Other news of note in Savannah today, the Tybee Road bridges will be replaced with wider spans. The Georgia Department of Transportation is ready to start right-of-way acquisitions ahead of construction. The new bridges are meant to relieve congestion, particularly on summer beach weekends, and improve public safety, allowing more room for emergency vehicles to get on and off the island when there is a traffic accident on one of the bridges. Elsewhere, the University System of Georgia's decision last year to change the faculty tenure system has drawn the ire of the American Association of University Professors. The group is likely to censure the university system, which would have few concrete consequences, but would likely impact the reputation of the university system and thereby potentially harm the system's ability to recruit and retain teaching and research talent. And in sports, Georgia Southern is paying its new football coaching staff $1.9 million in annual base salaries. Head coach Clay Hilton will make $4 million under his five-year contract, or about $800,000 a year. He will employ nine new on-field assistants. Another assistant, cornerbacks coach Kevin Whitley, is a lone assistant retained from the previous staff and is still under contract. He makes $95,000 a year. Read those stories and more at savannahnow.com, the online home of the Savannah Morning News. You can get full access to savannahnow.com and our mobile app for just $49 for the next year. That's a pretty good deal, $49 for the next year. Go to savannahnow.com slash subscribe now and sign up. That's all for the Tuesday Commute Podcast. Thanks again to our presenting sponsor, National Office Systems. For more interviews with local newsmakers, check out the Commute archives by searching The Commute with that Savannah opinion. The Commute returns Thursday and will feature Savannah Economic Development Authority CEO Trip Tollison. He gives a comprehensive look behind the curtain of CETA's recent successes, as well as at the challenges ahead. Thank you for listening.